Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Australian jazz heavyweight Christopher Hale. Christopher has been called one of the most unique and respected musicians in Australia and an unconventional virtuoso of the bass guitar. His new release, Ritual Diamonds, came out on March 3rd through Earshift Music. The work reimagines Korean ritual drumming and contemporary jazz creating music that is mysterious, complex, and beautiful. Christopher's joined by collaborator and friend, Korean drumming innovator Mingyong Woo, and the group is rounded out by some of Australia's finest jazz artists. Jamie Ohlers on saxophone, Andrea Keller on acoustic and electric piano, Theo Carbo on guitars, and Simon Barker on drums. Christopher was a very generous and engaged conversationalist. He gave us a lot of insight into his philosophies, his process, and his approach. I hope our discussion spurs you to search out his music. Enjoy. I'm a little jealous by your surroundings. It's beautiful keyboards and books. That's about uh, <laughs> that's about what I aspire to. It's enough to occupy anyone's time, you would think. Yeah. Is that how you occupied yourself during lockdown? To an extent, yes. I did spend a lot of time here in my studio during lockdown. At the beginnings, you probably remember, there was a surge of spirit towards continuing all of our efforts, being apart from one another. It did turn a lot of good musicians into very poor video makers. And I think that I possibly was among that group for a minute. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. I'm not sure how well those COVID concerts will age, but... I do appreciate the there was a, a real sense of effort to try and maintain connection and activity through that time. And, and I think that the spirit that that reflects will last in my memory longer than the grainy Zoom concert videos. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. When you said uh, you're not so sure how well they'll age, I wonder if maybe that's the point. They're not really meant to. They served their purpose in the moment. I definitely can recall being on what I'll call in air quotes, Zoom events, whether it was concerts or we even hosted some live recordings of the podcast where people came in and watched with the guest and we did Q&A. I think that they got people through. (laughs) I definitely think it helped. Yeah. There was something I read in another interview with you as I was preparing for this and it really struck me. So I'm going to say it back to you and maybe we could talk about this notion for a moment. Because it struck me so much, the reward is going to be, I'm going to do a terrible job paraphrasing. (laughs) Essentially, you were talking about how inspiration must inevitably lead to work or it's just entertainment. Now, whether I mangled it is one thing, but that notion really was, it really struck me um, how the work part of inspiration is so important that it almost becomes inspiration after the fact. It's not inspiration until the work's done. Could you talk to me a little bit about that and whether that's a philosophy, a guiding philosophy, or a, an inspiration or insight you had? Uh, it's just, it's a very striking comment. I think you're right. Inspiration necessarily needs to be, if we follow the etymology to begin with, say, you need to have inspired 
breathed in the aspect of life that you are that is interesting you you can't merely hang out with it you can't be just be in its presence and not engage it you need to inspire it literally breathe it in as they would have said possibly but it needs to be responded to via action to have thoughts about music let's say thoughts about music with no action with no sound being produced then to to my mind that's something else that's conceptual art or it's philosophy or something it hasn't transformed into music which by necessity is sound or you can have ideas that have musical quality that are analogous to musical feelings but it has to have sound it has to have action and so there's a lot of music that i enjoy say that i listen to and i will learn from on lots of different levels but to me the act of being inspired by music influenced by it let's say is an action it's an active process of assimilating principles finding analogs for those principles that are natural to me and then responding to that in a way that i can see the through line between the inspiring source my process activity to respond to that source and then something i've produced in response mm. and without that full arc then to me i haven't fulfilled the process of being inspired by something what i've done is just consumed it yeah i appreciate that articulation that elaboration so there is to you a difference between the consumption and inspiration they're both taking in but one actually provokes you to pick up your tool or your composition notebook or whatever it is and the other simply tickles you or brightens your day or provokes thought or what have you exactly to me i do think and there are some music that i listen to obviously the varieties of musical experience are not as neatly partitioned as my next point might suggest but there is music that i listen to that i wouldn't consider to be influential on my music making simply because i haven't undertaken that action work i'm listening to it for different reasons for sense for sensation for its emotional salve at any given time maybe sometimes for nostalgic reasons or for provoking reasons but until i undertake to work in response then to me it's a, that's a different category of listening the reason that i dwell on this for a moment is that i've spoken with other artists and musicians who they come down on either side of this this next question i want to ask you or point i'd like to explore which is i've talked to some artists who especially when they're in what they would call a work mode or a work period as different from a time where they step away for a moment they're careful about what they listen to, maybe to the point of not listening to anything else at all because they don't want the influence or they don't want to maybe subtly take a lick or a whatever. They don't, they just don't want that. And I wonder if because you have such a sharp delineation and it implies all kinds of things. Now you could talk about taste, you could talk about preference, style. It unlocks a lot of different avenues, but how does being a listener impact you as a creator? A lot of the music that I make, that I create, is on some level in response to other music. And in many ways, I think of Stravinsky, who has famously said that the clearest response to a piece of music, the only true comment on 
music is another piece of music. And I think that there are certain domains of emotional life which are expressed in music and that shouldn't be confused for other types of psychological circumstances. But for me, the creation process does begin with listening in many respects, either listening to one of my colleagues and hearing something in what they're doing that resonates with me such that I'm, I can imagine collaborating, listening to a piece of music that reveals a corner of, of aesthetic or sort of technical activities that I can feel the draw to participate in or the draw to recreate for myself. For me, creation of music often gets prompted by listening to music. But going back to where your this subject opened, which is the deliberate avoidance of, of some music in the creation period, I think that on, in many ways that speaks to a, a kind of self-knowledge or at least to self-management towards productivity. Because lots of musicians have a relationship with music outside of their own involvement with it. And other musicians are only interested in music insofar as they are involved in it. So what I mean by that is that you might have a jazz musician, for example, who is having a, a daily effort towards developing a personal point of view within the context of this of that music tradition, while at the same time also having a daily relationship with the great performers of that music. You might have a, a saxophone player who listens to John Coltrane on the way to rehearsal. That's, for a sensitive musician, that's a tremendous psychological weight to bear. You know that John Coltrane exists just before you pick up your own horn and then you try and reconcile what it means to make a meaningful contribution, deal with the lingering sound of that great master in your ears. That's a particular type of artist's anxiety. You know, you probably remember Harold Bloom developing a whole theory about the anxiety of that influence. And that anxiety is really real. I can really remember it. I mean, I think most musicians probably on, at some time in their life can relate you go to a gig and you see a great performer and they're so persuasive and you think to yourself, wow, that is it. Whatever I'm doing is not it. And that is it. <laughs> and, and the temptation, especially when you're young, the temptation is to, is to drop your own tools and try and pick up theirs because of how persuasive that is. And it takes a while to be at peace in the presence of that greatness and not allow your ego to to derail your own relationship with your own work. Mm. And that's really hard. And actually, I, I do think that that takes some sort of management all through your life, for me at least, I think, takes some sort of management. I think that's kind of smart in a way to avoid, at least for certain periods of the creative process, to avoid giving yourself that extra psychological weight to bear of the existence of John Coltrane on the day you're supposed to be recording. Well, that's a much more vulnerable perspective than as I'd heard it presented before, whereas the other, I guess the other vulnerable perspective was the fear of stealing or copying, whereas your response is more about who are you as a saxophone player in a post-John Coltrane world and how dare you pick up the saxophone? Look, <laughs> look, if only I had the just utter, complete, unhindered mastery of my instrument that I could listen to a John Coltrane solo and then unconsciously reproduce it. I think that the pathway for that kind of really deep assimilation, such that you produce something unconsciously, 
that's decades of absorption and decades of of meditation on John Coltrane. I mean, I'm not sure if there's this the just the time scale of in the period of making an album, I don't really want to unconsciously reproduce all of John Coltrane's things. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm caricaturing it, but to me the time scale doesn't feel that doesn't add up to me. I would not put myself into that category. To me, to unconsciously copy someone on a material level that would be identifiable and somehow render everything I was doing inauthentic, I don't think that would be a danger in that short time scale. I think there's time scales of absorption going on here and there's different ways to be influenced by music and different ways to be inspired by it. And something I'm constantly fascinated with is the notion that you might hear one musician performing what you think, what to your ears is a completely original point of view. And then you ask a simple question and they say, oh, I'm just doing my bad impersonation of Jimi Hendrix or something. So in their mind, there is a definite through line between their relationship with Jimi Hendrix and the music that they're performing. However, from your point of view, it's completely transmuted into something original. I think that our complex inner musical lives we maintain the integrity of those through lines in a way that are concealed from the listener. And so sometimes I think that we could be a little clearer in our categories, you know, what actually constitutes material devices, rhythmic, harmonic, melodic, actual um, musical dimensions, and then what we might call emotional dimensions, things that have to be filtered through a subjective lens in order to inform a personal point of view. But sometimes musicians wrap all those things up into very complex, subjective relationships with the artists that they love. And so sometimes we might be talking at cross-purposes sometimes, you know. Yeah. I do promise that we are here to talk about your new work, but I, I, I do have a few more <laughs> questions along <laughs> these lines I'd love to no, explore please. with you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> do you ever find that you need inspiration or is inspiration something that sneaks up on you? Do you ever have to go in search of it? Oh, that's great. I do think that it takes a long time for me to truly realize what constitutes inspiration in my practice. So for example, um, a listening experience, an aesthetic experience, a fascination, some kind of a way being impacted by a listening experience can spark a sort of vein of inquiry that you actually that you have to perform on your instrument. It brings up lots of questions which can only be answered with when you're on your instrument. And that takes a long time for me because I need to actually work out what it is I'm being moved by, work out how it works or at least how I can find an analog on my instrument. Then I need to develop a seed of materials, actual expressible sound objects that I can put together. Then I need to understand what those things are that I produced and, and work out how to vary them on their own terms, grow the idea until it can be flexible such that I can perform with someone else and I can be present. You know, it's flexible enough to be in the moment with them. That takes a long time. Along the way, it becomes quite a personal thing. And so there's always something to return to for me that could have been prompted by an inspiration 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Hmm. There's always something to return to. Another question that I need to ask the next time I come into the studio, another question of my instrument, another question of this pool of resources that I'm 
manipulating. But as a listener, I will go in search of things. I'll go in search of some new some new music to enjoy or something I haven't heard or so in that regard I will do that. But as a performer, as a creator of music, I don't think I go in search of things. They often come into my life by accident or by circumstance, but I don't think to myself I'm feeling creatively creatively dry here. I don't know where to go next. Okay, let me go on go out searching for things. I, I know musicians like that and I really appreciate that searching quality, but for me, I will work away at something and always and have always things to return to, which has its own kind of self-propulsion. It rolls out of its own center in a certain way that means I don't need to go searching for outside impact of that so much. That's really interesting. When you reference your instrument, it's very hard to know what you're referring to because uh, from what I gather, there's lots of instruments that are yours. Do you find that you generally reach for a bass over a keyboard or you grab a drum and bang? Like, What's the thing you most naturally reach for when you need to say that first thing? Mm. Well, I think all of these ideas that I have at some point have to go through the bass. That's the instrument that's closest to me. It's probably my most expressive tool in a way. There are other instruments that I need to that I need to employ that can that will demonstrate aspects of an idea that the bass can't do, but everything comes out of the bass and the bass is the is the forum in which I develop my body's relationship with a musical idea. Outside of music, what inspires you? I'm very interested in physical practices that have over time developed some kind of conceptual explanatory language around them. Like especially martial arts is something that I'm very interested in and I've been doing for a long time. Ritual? Are you referring to ritual? I think I'm more referring to the way very complex physical activities like martial arts or fighting styles, some sports, because the knowledge is so embodied, in order to find a language to talk about that thing, it to pass it and put it into kind of technical parameters is so complex. And so usually it just attracts metaphorical language in order to get physical things done. So I'm interested in that relationship. So I'm always returning to martial arts and, and sometimes discussions of martial arts to learn things about the relationship between physicality and thought, let's say. That's fascinating. So the, the practice is the message. And the knowledge is in the body and it strains as you try and put it into words. But in the strain, there's so much to be learned. That's not strictly a musical thing, but it, it's a domain that's not musical. But to me, the way that thoughts of, yeah, like the semiotics of trying to discuss physical activity resembles to me the same kind of like awkwardness of trying to discuss musical activity. Because you're you're dealing with related but kind of distinct domains of knowledge. I like that. I like that awkwardness. Because in the in the awkwardness is a lot to be learned about our relationship, especially when we try and filter that kind of embodied knowledge through a, a nice, dutiful Cartesian lens like we all signed up for. You know so. <laughs> our agreed upon reality here. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. You've done me a great service because you gave me a skeleton key into this conversation, which um if I'm honest, I couldn't find my way in initially. So you've given me a gift in this conversation, and I hope I don't misuse it, but 
I could see your attraction to the shamanic drumming, that specific aspect of the drumming in the music you've been studying and working on. I mean, obviously drumming is a physical action, but it is a practice that has an expressive element. What I had been wanting to ask you was whether there was anything important or meaningful to you about specifically the shamanic element. Do you have an interest in those those traditions outside of your Korean drumming studies? Like, do you find the mystical traditions interesting in any way, or is it just it's just a fact of what you happen to be studying now, or a facet of what you're studying now? Yeah. Oh no, I I find them tremendously interesting. I'll back up a little. I used to have a very keen interest in spiritual dimensions of music making or human life in general, and then how those got how the natural relationship between spiritual dimension became confused and ultimately like alienated by the language and the sort of the philosophical structures that would get attached to them until such time that I, that it seemed to me that there were, that in certain traditions you had a, a, a spiritual practice and then you had a kind of philosophical linguistic overlay yeah, that the cultural layer. Yes. That kind of alienated the two in, in a sense Spending a long time in Korea, spending a long time doing lots of physical activity made me realize, or it gave me a certain insight, which I haven't exactly found a good way to articulate, but it made me realize the inseparability, the, the unified nature of actual activity, social communal activity in the form of rituals or in the form of um, other kinds of social spiritual practices and the spiritual dimension that they are referring to or that they are invoking. So in the sense that there's some separation between the, let's say the deity that one is referencing within a ritual context and the actual activities of that ritual context, the fact that those things are, to my mind, I'm realizing they're one in the same thing. And just like, you know, music, is analogous to me in a sense because we have also inherited a bit of dualism with the way we discuss music. We have capital M music, the sort of, let's say, the platonic idea of it as a conceptual territory that we hold, that we place amongst our other conceptual treasures like religion or these things, something that exists in an abstract form. And then bringing up the Greeks, we had the idea of thinking about music, but to actually perform music, that was something that no respectable person would ever do that. That's what we left for the lower classes, you know. And so to me, the idea of the music in the abstract and music in the practical are now, to me, no longer so separate. Music needs to be played, which sort of references what I said before. If there's no sound, if you're not, if there's no action, and you're just theorizing, then pretty soon you're going to get into trouble. But even really composition isn't enough then in that paradigm. Composition itself is only part of the work. Yeah, that's right. I think it is only part of the work. It bridges a gap between the, the abstract and the action, of course, 
but there's another chasm it needs to leap over unless the composer is performing that themselves. There's another chasm it needs to reach over before it reaches the ears of the listener. Like a book that never gets read or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. right. It has to be realized in the, it has to be realized. And I don't mean to say there's no value in, in thinking about music or conceptualizing away from instruments, because obviously there is. And also by the same token, I'm not saying that just playing without any sort of self-reflection or anything is also the most authentic way to be, because that can time and again, you'll hit walls or you'll find yourself narrowing your world. And like everything, the balance between the two and recognizing the unity between the two is the thing that the area that I find most fruitful. And with ritual music and ritual drumming, especially the activity itself, that is the spiritual expression. And it's only us trying to put a paradigm of, of dualism on top of things that, that lead us to confusion. We are very fortunate in Australia by living on this land, we're, we're kind of taking part in the longest cultural and spiritual tradition in the world. Various indigenous spiritual practices around Australia are so practical and, let's say, utilitarian in a sense of, of facilitating actual lived daily life that they're so embedded it's still taking a long time for white Australia, European, the European side of people who live here now. It's taken a long time for us to really understand what's going on, simply because we have such a dualistic notion of what we put on spiritual practice. We think that it's separate to everyday life. It's like an addition, not necessary. Or if it is necessary, it's in a kind of like very pious, very like way that's separated from our everyday activities. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. It strikes me as the reason why a lot of people, it's a broad way to say it, but it certainly explains the discomfort, maybe amongst especially Western rational people, that they have with people who live religious lives out in the open. There's a lot of excess baggage around that oftentimes it's wrapped up with the political implications or lifestyle implications but i do believe that some of it comes down to just that being confronted publicly with someone who does not keep those things separate from their practical or utilitarian life it touches something that's that's uncomfortable to a a mind that's more of the last 150 200 years than a mind that <laughs> <laughs> that remembers that, you know, it's it hasn't been that long that that we've been that separate from, even though Western culture has been separating itself from the natural spiritual world for a long time, it really only got good at it <laughs> since the 19th century. You know, when you think even, even the mid-late 19th century, there were still respectable people from academia and other worlds in Western Europe who could be in spiritualist societies and were experimenting with seances and this was in respectable company they would talk about these things yeah it's not that long no and in fact when you think about the concerns of the end of the 19th century or like towards the end of the 19th century the concerns of Nietzsche and the concerns of Jung in the beginning of the 20th century about the alienation from spiritual life that they saw going on 
was going to have consequences of some kind or another. And Nietzsche, obviously, he put it in such a dramatic way that that no one can read him, you know, without mischaracterizing. And Jung recognized that there's a that that spiritual itch needs to be scratched somewhere or another, and you'll find a way to do it. And sometimes it can just enter into confusion. Sometimes, you know, I'm not saying this with any value judgment about the nature of the of how societies are constructed or or constructed is the wrong word how they've evolved let's say so there's no value judgment here it's just something that that i've noticed music can be a good opportunity to recognize the actual mechanics of a spiritual practice mm. is the spiritual practice it's like zen is not thinking about god while you're peeling the potatoes zen is peeling the potatoes and to me, the the idea that that embedded in the actual drumming act, in that context, is the materials that that are designed for the social and ritual purposes. And my friend Minyong, the drummer who I collaborate with on this my last record, she learnt that ritual drumming language from a family of drummers in the, on the east coast of South Korea in a coastal city called Busan. It's a big city in Korea. They are a group of what they call hereditary shaman. So they're performing troops of shaman. And then on the other side, you have what they, another type of shaman is what they call um, charismatic shaman. So maybe someone that, that had an experience in their youth or some something and then was said to have a revelation of some kind and then they perform more resembling the kind of spiritualist aspect that you mentioned before similar to kind of that role whereas the hereditary shaman are performers and so they don't do one-to-one consultation type fortune telling shaman stuff they perform musical rituals that go for three or four days and there's all sorts of facets to them there's text and singing there's um, improvisation there's drumming and that is the thing that performs the spiritual purpose of the day, of the event, a funeral or when you're about to embark on fishing season or this sort of thing. And so Minyoung learned the language of that drumming from a family, the family that originated that style. And unfortunately, all of the drummers of that family, the actual relations have passed away now. And so the drumming of Tongan Ploshinku ritual ceremony drumming, there's no actual hereditary shamans alive now. But because they they taught in the universities and they and it's it became a recognized style in Korea via the intangible asset cultural system, the government system where they designate all the different cultural practices as intangible cultural assets. And so they they get preserved. Strangely enough that never quite sat well with this particular style of ritual drumming because it, it was so improvisational. And so you'd have the government official with their clipboard coming down to make sure that everything was correct and it could be on the register, but of course it would change every time. And the last of the hereditary shaman ritual drummers was an absolutely lovely, lovely man named Kim Jong-hee. He sadly passed away in 2019. And he had his own personal point of view on ritual drumming that was so creative and so playful and so fun and so virtuosic just stunningly shockingly virtuosic in its own way 
Minyong was lucky to have lessons with him. And so when it came, when we met and playing around and we found these ways to find some common ground between rhythmic structures that we could play with together, she could apply aspects of this ritual language and rearrange them via structures that didn't appear in the ritual forms. And so in that way, listening to Minyoung's drumming on our last record is, it has that quality of all the qualities that perform the ritual element in, in the ceremonies. It's kind of rhythmically ambiguous. It's very, it's virtuosic and it's, it's hard to ascertain. It's hard to kind of grasp. It's disorienting sometimes. And then, but those are the things that invite ritual experience. You know, this is a rather long answer, but. No, no, there, there, it's you, again, you're, you're solving something for me in that when I read about the music before I listened to it, I came into a curious as to how it was going to be pulled off. And part of it was because I came to it with some presupposition about what Korean ritual drumming was. And I had in my mind the five or six people standing in that formation with the drums, very aggressive, loud, synchronized, sort of a call and response element to it. But, you know, there's a very stereotypical, I think, notion of the Korean drumming style. I thought, oh, this is going to be like some kind of loud free jazz album or something. <laughs> you know, the only way to combat that drumming is going to be with like an overblown tenor or something like that. It was actually quite the opposite. It's a very delicate, I guess, in a way, set of music. The first listen through, I thought, I don't hear, I don't understand. I didn't understand. I, lo- I enjoyed the music, but I didn't understand where the Korean drumming fit. And then after spending some time with the album, what I realized was, and I read some of the notes, you did some track by track notes, even though I don't have the training, I listened for the rhythms you talked about. Oh, this is such and such rhythm. It's very standard in Korean drum. And so I realized there was something going on. And what occurred to me was it'd be very interesting to sit with the multi-tracks and just listen to the drums because then like the Korean drumming's there. I couldn't hear it. And if you didn't tell me it was there, I may not have even known there was something going on except interesting sound. The way it manifests in the recordings is actually quite lovely and not at all cliche. Even in the notes that I read, I think the word fusion may have been used. It was a fusing. It was an inter- it was it was more than that though. It was an integration or a dialogue. That's right. And I think that's a really good thing to drill down in it, to offer an explanation of the music in a way. Because I spent a lot of time in Korea studying Korean drumming with the full knowledge that I didn't want to perform Korean drumming. And I didn't want to be an exponent of Korean music, you know, a foreign exponent of it. There are a lot of people that, you know, non-Koreans who've dedicated their lives to that and have found it in a really enriching way to to practice that. But that hasn't interested me. And also I don't I don't want to actually uh reproduce or imitate Korean drumming at all. However, my friend Minyoung comes from Korean traditional music. And so in many ways, like when you have a new friend and you want to make music together, you could just kind of like, I'll do my thing and she can do her thing. And then we'll just juxtapose them. That was like, you could say that that kind of like short time scale 
kind of interactions happened a lot in the early days of let's say world music yeah you know wherein it was just about the it was about the juxtaposition of of musical practices mostly for their kind of like exotic sort of like things and then you would essentially just put them together and present that that doesn't interest me so what we tried to do is that if i have my music and my friend minyoung has hers then in order to play together we have to find something together and it took me 10 years to <laughs> understand enough to find a way that i could create a situation for my friend to bring herself to bear in a collaborative relationship and and me too and so it took a long time as a result what you're hearing even though it has all of that depth of drumming language in it and rhythmic language which is being translated into the western instruments also you're actually hearing new formulations of how that language is put together and in the instances where as you you know you picked it that we do actually reference some standard korean forms however what we don't do is just play that as it appears in a korean context and like just do a version of it on a western instrument what we've done is taken that form and dug down into the form to reveal other dimensions that can invite my personal melodic language and likewise i've given minyoung structures that invites her shaman drumming language so it took a long time but i really appreciate how integrated that is has come across to you cuz not an easy thing to do you know it's not easy especially now i mean i grew up in an, in a time where it was much more common for people from different backgrounds to play music together there wasn't the same sense of caution or skepticism around the interaction between different cultures and so when you have friends who are from different places and you want to play music together it takes a long time to do something that's really sincere and really authentic and values everyone's individual contributions in a way that gets beyond the kind of exoticism of that juxtaposition style world music What's the modern caution or reaction to? Is it the exoticism or is is it a political thing about appropriation? Like what's going on there? Yeah. I think a lot there's still a lot of bruising from some there have been some occasions in the past where you've had musicians coming in seeking out exotic sounds from other cultures and just like taking things in order to make their own music more interesting or something and they and often there's there's economic sort of misbehavior and there's yeah what you might call some sort of cultural misbehavior too and that has happened in the past for sure and i think there's still a lot of bruising from that in music world and so as a result even though on a socioeconomic level and in a and a social level and everything south korea is um we're not necessarily talking about the same socio-economic dimensions but there is a certain sense of going wait a second what are you up to here what are you doing it takes some patience for a listener to understand the possibilities for learning about other musical cultures and then producing something new with friends from those musical cultures but yes the notions of appropriation and other kinds of 
misbehaviors in the past, I think, linger in some people's imaginations. How did you first encounter the Korean drumming? Did you go looking for it or did you stumble across it? How, what's the origin story there? I was playing in a in an electroacoustic kind of like improv group. Actually, with the recently stepped down um, director of the Australian Art Orchestra, his name's Peter Knight, um, electroacoustic musician and trumpeter. We had a project and we went to Korea from the recommendation of a promoter in Korea to meet a Korean jazz improvising singer named Sunny Kim, who's a great singer. And this promoter said, you two should get together with Sunny Kim and make a record in Korea. So we did that. And Peter is constantly interested in opportunities around the world and interested in making connections. And he got an invitation from a traditional Korean drumming group called Norumachi, led by a master drummer singer named Kim Joo-hong, a really great musician. And we were invited to go to hear one of their rehearsals. And I'd never heard Korean music. This was my first time in Korea. I didn't know a thing about Korean drumming. And we went to this rehearsal and sat in a small room in suburban Seoul with four drummers from Norimachi and listened to them rehearse. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, my, I was having my brain rearranged by the power of this sound and rhythm. Never heard anything like it. It was loud and fast. It was startling in how virtuosic it was. But at the same time, there was this coherence among the drummers that I couldn't understand how it worked. I mean, a musician mind is always going to try and say, wait a second. I couldn't understand how they were able to play with such elasticity, such dynamics. And it was like certain points, the rhythm was so gooey and elastic. It was like four Jay Dillers in a room playing exact unison. I was immediately kind of entranced by this style of drumming. And it was so, it was funky. It had all these kind of aspects of things that resonated with me from, from some of the music of my past. And anyway, I just started asking questions and I had my bass with me. And Kim Jong, one of Kim Jong's young colleagues, another great musician named Yi Holwon, he did this little decoding of a rhythm for me in numbered cells. This incredible rhythm. What's going on there? How, what is happening here? And he said, oh, okay, it's like this. Five, five, three, three, five, 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 five. And I went, oh, okay, cool, cool. And many improvising musicians, most of us, especially in Australia, are used to that form of communication, constructing rhythm via numbered cells. I could immediately latch on to, it gave me a framework to, like you say, like it gave me a skeleton key to suddenly refresh my engagement with what was going on. And then suddenly, once I knew the structure, it became even more miraculous. To me, it made me realize that this incredible complexity and beauty of this astounding drumming style could be decoded in a way that I could understand it. And it meant that to engage with it didn't mean just simply learning the repertoire and reproducing the repertoire in its original form. It meant that I could engage with the way it was put together. And that became even deeper when I realized getting to the bottom of how the elastic quality of the rhythm was possible was in addition to this kind of metrical dimension, there's a system of breathing and body movement that is learned from within this particular style. 
they call the, the teaching system hohup. It literally means exhale, inhale, literally means breathing. But in the context of drumming, it refers to the, a pedagogy of systemized body movement, conceptualization, and breath-inspired aesthetic connection. Anyway, I spent seven years learning hohup, and then not so I could obviously be a drummer, but so that I could feel in my body what was making this incredible rhythm possible. Wow. And then I worked out a way that I could put it onto the bass, and I worked out a way that I could teach my version of it to other Western instrumentalists. And so what ended up being so exciting for me about Korean drumming was not the possibility of performing it, but learning how it worked and then expanding my musical world via looking at what motivated the rhythm. And so the music that I make now, and even the, the music I make with Min Young is not Korean music in a sense that we're not, it's about two friends playing together. But when I play my solo music or my electronic music, it's all of this breath and body movement generated rhythm that I'm able to translate to these other formulations. And so in, in my sense, it is a version, my personalized version of Hohu. But of course, at no point am I imitating or otherwise trading on the sonic characteristics of Korean drumming. There's something a bit profound in the idea that your friends, shamanic teachers, their lineage has basically physically gone extinct. Yet there are a group of you, a generation of you who are essentially like a prism for their lineage. And now it will refract into all these new directions that they probably, well, maybe they did know, but you know, the, the sort of cultural DNA and, or the ancestral DNA of it is not at all extinct. It's actually very vibrant and vital. Mm. It's uh, mm. there's, there is something there. I, I, I can't prove it to you, but I'm certain. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this, in the spirit, and as you say, in the DNA of the language that's being transmitted, of course, the ritual ceremony, that 400 years of drumming style, and cultural monolith in the context of Korean performing arts. Yeah, of course, I, I don't know if that will happen again. Yeah. And the fact that, um, that it was one family, Kim family from, from Busan. Kim Sokchul was the famous sort of patriarch of the family. His nephew, Kim Yong-tek, became the cultural asset holder when Kim Sokchul passed away. And Kim Yong-tek was a great drummer astounding drummer and then his cousin Kim Jong-e was who taught Min Young and I was fortunate to spend time with him also all of those great drummers have passed away now the adopted son of the family his name is um Cho Jong-un he's a great drummer too and he was in the family for a long time and he's just left the family he actually has his own group called Byolsinak which uses similarly the DNA of the Dongyeon Pyeongchenkut ritual style in new formulations. He plays with Australian drummer Simon Barker, who's a really good friend of mine and who plays on my record too. He plays with Korean jazz musicians as well. The appetite for especially Kim Jong-e, the last great ritual drummer of that style, to collaborate with musicians from outside ritual style was really frequent and he had a great appetite for collaboration. And also he had a great appetite for change and for um, for finding new flavors 
in the context of that style. And so in many ways, even though obviously Minyong is not taking forward the tradition of the ritual ceremony, she is using the DNA of that drumming style to create something new. I would like to think, and I think that I'm pretty confident in saying this, and I know that, you know, if some colleagues of mine would probably agree who knew Kim Jong-il better than me, I would suggest that he would be happy to hear it. Yeah. And it is really sad that the ceremony is finished, but there is elements of it that continue. And then also, of course, every time that we, that we perform or every time that someone asks, we're very happy to say this language is inspired by the great Kim Jong-il. Yeah. I don't want to belabor the metaphor, but the idea that DNA finds a way to propagate. I'm just going to allow myself to be convinced that's what's going on here (laughs) because I like the notion. (laughs) Yeah. And also we can give that some teeth too by bringing it back to your original idea, which is actually what, what constitutes inspiration and how inspiration as action is the thing that can lead to new creativity. So what Minyoung is doing and what is taking the DNA, the physicality of the way that this language is put together and rearranging it. So the DNA is, is there and is being re-articulated or re-expressed in new forms via action, actual drumming. Mm. It's not a vague notion of what the ritual drumming is. It's not an approximation of it. It's not a characterization of it. It's, it's not a vibe, if you know what I mean. It's not a vague thing. That DNA constitutes actionable rhythmic movement that can lead to new possibilities. Yes. What you're saying much better is what I was struggling with earlier, which is when I hear the music, I can see the relatives. I can see the family resemblance. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. If I can, I just have one more question for you. And it takes us a little bit outside the realm of the new album. But when I was learning about you, there are many references to your background with flamenco and Afro-Cuban music. And I'm curious, is there any non-labored point to be made or through line to be seen amongst the different musics you're attracted to? You know, rhythm stood out as the obvious one to me, but I would I would rather hear you say what it is, even if it rhythm <laughs> i'm just curious <laughs> what draws you in and makes you become a student of something i guess would be the yeah question i think rhythm yeah <laughs> really yeah <laughs> yeah All well right, there we end <laughs> but it is so yeah but i it is rhythm because that's the thing that's the thing that i'm principally interested in and it's the thing that grabs me and the thing that provokes a fascination in, enough for me to spend time trying to dig into something. Flamenco music, African music, I was really fortunate as a kid. My first teacher was a Brazilian percussionist. And so I played bandero in shora groups and stuff when I was a kid and, and then met a whole lot of Latin American musicians in Melbourne, where I live. And that was very common at the time. And a particular family of flamenco musicians who I spent 15 years with, a great dance company called Arte Canela. And during all that time, I'd be playing, essentially getting 
playing with these traditional exponents of their particular musics and trying to get it right for them and trying to learn as much as I could and suffering in the process. But then when it came to make my own music, I didn't want to just pretend that I was from that stuff because I'm not. But I did want to make music that felt the same as the music that I was playing. And flamenco is a good example. And so flamenco music, as you know, is a, there's rhythmic aspects that are extremely strong and they're tied up in harmonic aspects, gestural aspects. You have these rhythmic cycles, which are multifaceted cycles, which give meaning to every gesture that's happening on stage. And they have within them these inbuilt structures of tension and release, which are very important. Without that structure of tension and release, then you're doing something else. It's not, you're not in compass, as as you'd say. That really interested me. And so when I wanted to do something of my own, but again, my friends were flamenco musicians. One of my closest friends is a dancer and percussionist, and I wanted to do something with him, but my group. And I didn't want to just play flamenco music or my sort of pretend version of it. So I recognized that whatever we do has to have that tension and release in it. It has to have a version of compass so that it can make sense to him. And so that he can bring his dancing language and his percussive language into a world that makes sense in a way that he can contribute. I created all of these rhythms for him that had the qualities of tension and release such that they could facilitate him being able to contribute his personal thing freely but there were not flamenco ones to me i i feel like that was a way of getting original music to feel like flamenco such that i could get my friends involved but it wasn't copying it or imitating it it was new that's become a template that i followed in lots of different examples lots of different interactions i've had yeah so if i meet someone new a new friend and we get along and we want to make music together it's not enough to simply imitate each other's sounds or imitate each other's language. We can dig down and find something that is intelligible via both of our worldviews. You know, in flamenco, it might have been the tension and release aspect of compass that I could create something new. With Mignon, there's the rhythmic construction thing, the, num- the numbered systems. We can find somewhere. We just got to dig down. It takes a long time. Yeah. You can't be swept away by the just the sheer kind of brilliance of the sonic characteristics and just try and copy them. You have to go down. To me, that's the through line. And they're rhythmic things. They're actionable. It's not merely a thought about music. It's an action to do music. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. That was a delight. Good luck with the record, and uh, I hope uh, it finds a wide audience. Thanks, Lawrence. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for your very thoughtful and very stimulating discussion for me. Thank you so much, Christopher Hale. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. 
Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.